Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so dies, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Dies, you tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? you tried to How do the dead come back? The Crimson Weaver by R. Murray Gilchrist My master and I had wandered from our track and lost ourselves on the side of a great edge. It was a two days' journey from the valley of the willow brakes and we had roamed aimlessly, eating at hollow echoing inns where grey-haired hostesses ministered, and sleeping side by side through the dewless midsummer nights on beds of fresh-gathered heather. Beyond a single-arched, wallless bridge that crossed a brown stream whose waters leaped straight from the upland, we reached the domain of the Crimson Weaver, no sooner had we reached the keystone when a bell dam, wrinkled as a walnut and bald as an egg, crept from a cabin of turf and osier and held out her hands in warning. Enter not the domain of the crimson weaver, she shrieked. One I loved entered. I am here to warn men. Behold, I was beautiful once. She tore her ragged smock apart and discovered the foulness of her bosom where the heart pulsed behind a curtain of livid skin. My master drew money from his wallet and scattered it on the ground. She is mad, he said. The evil she hints cannot exist. There is no fiend. So we passed on, but the bridge-keeper took no heed of the coins. For a while we heard her bellowed sighs issuing from the openings of her den. Strangely enough, the tenor of our talk changed from the moment that we left the bridge. He had been telling me of the Platonists, but when our feet pressed the sun-dried grass, I was impelled to question him of love. It was the first time I had thought of the matter. How does passion first touch a man's life, I asked, laying my hand on his arm. His ruddy colour faded. He smiled wryly. You divine what passes in my brain, he replied. I also had begun to meditate, but I may not tell you. In my boyhood, I was scarce older than you at the time. I loved the true paragon. It was sacrilege to speak of the birth of passion. Let it suffice that ere I tasted of wedlock, the woman died, and her death sealed forever the door of that chamber of my heart. Yet... If one might see therein, 
There is an altar crowned with ever-burning tapers and with wreaths of unwithering asphodels. By this time we had reached the skirt of a yew forest, traversed in every direction by narrow paths. The air was moist and heavy, but ever and anon a light wind touched the treetops and bowed them, so that the pollen sank in golden veils to the ground. Everywhere we saw half-ruined fountains, satyrs vomiting senilely, nymphs emptying wine upon the lambent flames of dying phoenixes, creatures that were neither satyrs nor nymphs, nor griffins, but grotesque adminglings of all, slain by one another, with water gushing from wounds in belly and thigh. At length the path we had chosen terminated beside an oval mere that was surrounded by a colonnade of moss-grown arches. Huge pike quivered on the muddy bed. Crayfish moved sluggishly among the weeds. There was an island in the middle, where a leaden Diana, more compassionate than a crocodile, caressed Acteon's horns ere delivering him to his hounds. The huntress's head and shoulders were white with the excrement of a crowd of culvers that moved, as if entangled in a snare. Northwards an avenue rose for the space of a mile to fall abruptly before an azure sky. For many years the yew-mast on the pathway had been undisturbed by human foot. It was covered with a crust of greenish lichen. My master pressed my fingers. There is some evil in the air of this place, he said. I am strong, but, but you, you may not endure. We will return. Tis an enchanted country, I made answer feverishly. At the end of yonder avenue stands the palace of the sleeping maiden who awaits the kiss. Nay, since we have pierced the country thus far, let us not draw back. You are strong, master. No evil can touch us. So we fared to the place where the avenue sank, and then our eyes fell on the wondrous sight of a palace lying in a concave pleasance, all treeless, but so bestarred with fainting flowers that neither blade of grass nor grain of earth was visible. Then came a rustling of wings above our heads, and looking skywards I saw flying towards the house a flock of culvers like unto those that had drawn themselves over Diana's head. The hindmost bird dropped its neck, and behold, it gazed upon us with the face of a mannequin. They are charmed birds, made thus by the whim of the princess, I said. As the birds passed through the portals of a columbary that crowned the western tower, their white wings beat against the silver bell that glistened there, and the whole valley was filled with music. My master trembled and crossed himself. In the name of our mother, he exclaimed, let us return. I dare not trust your life here but a great door in front of the palace swung open, and a woman with a swaying walk came out to the terrace. She wore a robe of crimson worn into tatters at skirt hem and shoulders. She had been forewarned of our presence, for her face turned instantly in our direction. She smiled subtly, and her smile died away into a most tempting sadness. She caught up such remnants of her skirt as trailed behind, and strutted about with the gait of a peacock. As the sun touched the glossy fabric, I saw eyes inwrought in deeper hue. 
My master still trembled, but he did not move, for the gaze of the woman was fixed upon him. His brows twisted and his white hair rose and stood erect, as if he viewed some unspeakable horror. Stooping, with sidelong motions of the head she approached, bringing with her the smell of such an incense as when amidst eastern herbs burns the coarse. She was perfect of feature as the Diana, but her skin was deathly white and her lips fretted with pain. She took no heed of me, but knelt at my master's feet, a Magdalene before an impregnable priest. Prince and Lord, Tower of Chastity, hear, she murmured. For lack of love I perish. See, my robe in tatters. He strove to avert his face, but his eyes still dwelt upon her. She half rose and shook nut-brown tresses over his knees. Youth came back in a flood to my master, his shriveled skin filled out, the dying sunlight turned to gold, the whiteness of his hair. He would have raised her had I not caught his hands. The anguish of foreboding made me cry, One forces roughly the door of your heart's chamber, the wreaths wither, the tapers bend and fall. He grew old again. The crimson weaver turned to me. Oh, Marplot, she said laughingly, think not to vanquish me with folly. I am too powerful. Once did a man enter my doom, he is mine. But I drew my master away. Tis I who am strong, I whispered. We will go hence at once. Surely we may find our way back to the bridge. The journey is easy. The woman, seeing that the remembrance of an old love was strong within him, sighed heavily and returned to the palace. As she reached the doorway, the valves opened, and I saw, in a distant chamber beyond the hall, an ivory loom with a golden stool. My master and I walked again on the track we had made in the U-mast, but twilight was falling, and ere we could reach the pool of Diana, all was in utter darkness. So at the foot of a tree, where no anthill rose, we lay down and slept. Dreams came to me, gorgeous visions from the romances of Eld. Everywhere I sought vainly for a beloved. There was the castle of the ebony dwarf, where a young queen reposed in an innermost casket of the seventh crystal cabinet. There was the chamber of gloom where Leonore danced, and where I groped for ages around columns of living flesh. There was a white minaret, where twenty-one princesses poised themselves on balls of burnished bronze. There was Melisandre's arbour, where the sacred toads crawled over the enchanted cloak. Unrest fretted me. I woke in spiritual pain. Dawn was breaking, a bright yellow dawn, and the glades were full of vapours. I turned to the place where my master had lain. He was not there. I felt with my hands over his bed. It was key-cold. Terror of my loneliness overcame me, and I sat with covered face. On the ground near my feet lay a broken riband, whereon was strung a heart of chrysolite. It enclosed a knot of ash-coloured hair, hair of the girl my master had loved. 
The mists gathered together and passed sunwards in one long, many-covered veil. When the last shred had been drawn into the great light, I gazed along the avenue and saw the topmost bartizan of the Crimson Weaver's Palace. It was midday ere I dared start on my search. The culvers beat about my head. I walked in pain as though giant spiders had woven about my body. On the terrace, strange beasts, dogs and pigs with human limbs, tore ravenously at something that lay beside the balustrade. At sight of me they paused and lifted their snouts and bayed. A while afterwards the culvers rang the silver bell, and the monsters dispersed hurriedly amongst the drooping blossoms of the plaisance, and where they had swarmed I saw naught but a steaming, sanguine pool. I approached the house, and the door fell open, admitting me to a chamber adorned with embellishments beyond the witchery of art. There I lifted my voice and cried eagerly, My master! My master! Where is my master? The alcove sent out a babble of echoes blended together like a harp chord on a dulcimer. My master! My master! Where is my master? For the love of Christ, where is my master? The echo replied only, Where? is my master. Above swung a globe of topaz, where a hundred suns gambled. From its centre a convoluted horn held by a crimson cord sank lower and lower. It stayed before my lips, and I blew therein, and heard the sweet voices of youth chant with one accord. Fall open, O doors! Fall open and show the way to the princess! Ere the last of the echoes had died, a vista opened, and at the end of an alabaster gallery I saw the crimson weaver at her loom. She had doffed her tattered robe for one new and lustrous as freshly drawn blood, and marvellous as her beauty had seemed before, its wonder was now increased a hundredfold. She came towards me with the same stately walk, but there was now a lightness in her demeanour that suggested the growth of wings. Within arm's length she curtsied, and curtsying showed me the firmness of her shoulders, the fullness of her breast. The sight brought no pleasure. My cracking tongue appealed in agony. My master! Where is my master? She smiled happily. Nay, do not trouble. He is not here. His soul talks with the culvers in the coat. He has forgotten you. In the night we supped, and I gave him of Nepenthe. Where is my master? Yesterday he told me of the shrine in his heart, of ever-fresh flowers, of a love dead yet living. Her eyebrows curved mirthfully. Tis foolish boy's talk, she said. If you sought till the end of time, you'd never find him unless I choose. Yet, if you buy of me, myself, to name the price. I looked around hopelessly at the unimaginable riches of her home. All that I have is this manor of the willow breaks, a moorish park, an ancient house where the thatch gapes and the casements swing loose. My possessions are pitiable, I said, but they are all yours. I give all to save him. Fool, fool, she cried, I have no need of gear. If I but raise my hand, 
all the riches of the world fall to me. Tis not what I wish for. Into her eyes came such a glitter as the moon makes on the moist skin of a sleeping snake. The firmness of her lips relaxed. They grew childlike in their softness. The atmosphere became almost tangible. I could scarce breathe. What is it? All that I can do, if it be no sin. Come with me to my loom, she said, and if you do the thing I desire, you shall see him. There's no evil in't. In past times, kings have sighed for the same. So I followed slowly to the loom before which she had seated herself and watched her deftly passing crimson thread over crimson thread. She was silent for a space, and in that space her beauty fascinated me, so that I was no longer master of myself. What you wish for I will give, even if it be life. The loom ceased. A kiss of the mouth, and you shall see him who passed in the night. She clasped her arms about my neck and pressed my lips. For one moment heaven and earth ceased to be. But there was one paradise, where we were sole governors. Then she moved back and drew aside the web and showed me the head of my master and the bleeding heart whence a crimson cord unraveled into many threads. I, where men's lives, the woman said, life is necessary to me, or even I, who have existed from the beginning, must die. But yesterday I feared the end, and he came. His soul is not dead. Tis truth that it plays with my culvers. I fell back. Another kiss, she said. Unless I wish, there is no escape for you. Yet you may return to your home, though my power over you shall never wane. Once more, lip to lip. I crouched against the wall like a terrified dog. She grew angry. Her eyes darted fire. A kiss, she cried, for the penalty. My poor master's head, ugly and cadaverous, glared from the loom. I could not move. The crimson weaver lifted her skirt, uncovering feet shapen as those of a vulture. I fell prostrate. With her claws she fumbled about the flesh of my breast. Moving away, she bade me pass from her sight. So, half dead, I lie here at the manor of the willow breaks, watching hour by hour the bloody clue ever unwinding from my heart and passing over the western hills to the palace of the siren. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So that was The Crimson Weaver um, by Robert Murray Gilchrist. I'll tell you something about him, about the story, and we'll talk something about decadence, I think. So Robert Murray Gilchrist, born 6th January 1867, died in 1917, was an English novelist and author of regional interest books about the Peak District of North Central England. 
He's best known today for his decadent and gothic short fiction. You may hear some dog snoring. Uh, or, or dream woofing as well. There's a, been a bit of dream woofing going on. I kept having to stop uh, and edit it out and redo it. But um, I sh I'm sure you won't mind a little bit of dream woofing while I woof on. So during his lifetime, he published 100 short stories, 22 novels, six story collections and four non-fiction books. And that's quite a few, isn't it? Um, Gilchrist was born in Sheffield, England, in Yorkshire. The second son of Robert Murray Gilchrist, same name as his dad, uh, and Isabella, just Isabella, his mother, she, she, that was all she was called. He was educated at Sheffield Royal Grammar School and later privately. He never married. He worked briefly for noted editor William Ernest Henley at the National Observer, uh, formerly, and lived uh, most of his life in North Der Derbyshire village of Holmesfield, living with his mother and a male companion at Cartledge Hall. From 1893 to 1897, he lived in a remote part of the Peak District, and some sources say he lived a few months in Paris, France. He began his writing career during 1890. Um, so he never achieved the recognition of his colleagues um, that people thought he, that he deserved. And, do you know, that's a pretty good story, I think. I, re I read a lot of um, these kind of things. It strikes me that, you know, when we think about what gets um, published as classic ghost stories, and I'm going to say why I think that now, because... Um, you may know that the British Library, this is relevant, has been producing um, anthologies of lesser-known stories, often by multiple authors. And there's ones about Christmas, there's ones about railways, uh, there's ones from nature, there's ones about media. Um, so there's, there's a they're actually really, really good. And there was one published called I Am Stone, which was a collection of R. Murray, Murray Gilchrist's uh, stories. Um edited by Daniel Peterson, who may be the same guy as Peter Sender. Now, Peter Sender, I follow him on Instagram and SoundCloud because he does some readings as well. And he kind of like, he does some Clark Ashton Smith stuff. And I think, uh, yeah, you would think of Clark Ashton Smith is a later generation than this. This this story is published in the 1895, I think, in the Yellow Book. So um, we'll say something about the Yellow Book. So the this was... The yellow 90s, the 1890s, were known as the um, yellow 90s and were a period of the so-called decadence movie. Um, you know, you think of um, Oscar Wilde and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, it was decadent and uh, people being ever so effete and um, drinking absinthe and things like that and dabbling a little bit in Satanism um, and magic and kind of stuff like that. So the, the best, there were a number of... There are a number of zines out at the moment that kind of serve a certain subculture that I'm peripherally um, attached to, I suppose, by interest, not that they know who I am, but um, Weird Walk. So I, I get a Weird Walk sticker and I put it up somewhere. I'm not going to tell you where that is, but I go on Weird Walks and I put it up. Um, and uh, Hellbore and um, one called Weird, W-Y-R-D. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of them and it was true in the 1890s. That's now. It's true in the 1890s as well. The Yellow Book, published between 1894 and April 97, 13 quarterly issues. So this came out in the 1895, and it was very, um, you know, Ella, we've, we've done other books, uh, other writers, stories by other writers. Aubrey Beardsley um, edited the magazine's art contents in its first year. Uh, you know, it was it was 
kind of the thing. Ella Darcy. Did Yates even have some stuff published in it? Potentially, I could be wrong there, but as, as usual, somebody will correct me. So you can see it's it's gothic, and whilst I say it's reminiscence of reminiscence of Clark Ashton Smith's Baroque fantasies, um, his is his is later, so potentially um, influenced by R. Murray Gilchrist's. I I like this kind of thing. And I, I remember when I was into Lovecraft and stuff back in my early years, uh, it was Ashton Smith and that this Baroque fantasy. This is exa- and and of course Edgar Allan Poe's um, The Fall of the House of Usher is just like this, isn't it? You know, this return to medievalism. And of course, the, the Victorians were keen on that, the pre-Raphaelites, William Morris. Looking back to a pre-industrial... Uh, paradise that didn't exist of course because I think um, things were pretty rough in the medieval period but this idea of knights and ladies and quests and adventures and monsters and in fact um, influences Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis and people like that you can see it coming right forward and through all of these people ourselves today so I really liked it and what was it about? It was it was like one of those stories. It was almost Arthurian, you know, where um, Parsifal or Peredir or um, what we call him these days, Lancelot, um, Percival, that's, who we call, that's what we call him, um, and Lancelot and all the guys go out and they do these errant quests and they come across strange monsters in strange castles and meet weird women who are mythic, aren't they? I mean, she's not a real person. Clearly, she's not a real person. She's got vulture's feet. I've never met. I did have a girlfriend a bit like that, but I don't remember her feet being like those of a vulture. So there we are. You know, I, I don't know if you you're realizing. I'm still tired from our trip recently, and my brain is is a bit like um, Pillsbury dough needs needed. It's not working properly. The words won't come out. But I, so I just want to give an impression of how much I like it. You know, I love all this stuff. I loved um, Arthur's stories, stories of King Arthur, and this is just like that, but reinvented in the Victorian way. And of course, this, often the stories that I read, the versions of the stories of King Arthur, were rewritten by Victorians or people who were, who were very close to being Victorians. And so this whole baroqueness. So we, we've got all the fancy words. We've got the we, you know, we're using archaic language to convey this weirdness. It's dreamlike as well, isn't it? It's mythic. So as far as I can tell, they, they're they just wandering aimlessly, as you do. I'd love to do that from the wood willow breaks where they live. And what the young man, he calls him his master and he's much younger. It's hard to work out what he is. Um, is he a servant? Is he just um, an acolyte? Is he just learning the ropes, the trade from the white-haired master who, to whom youth returns. So we have this sad picture of the master who's had this love um, and it didn't work out. And she's maybe moved. I think she died, didn't she? But, you know, let's say she moved on and he didn't move on. He had technically what we would call an adjustment disorder. We could give him some, well, you know, what can we give him for that? So we can give him something anyway, a nice SNRI or something. And he would feel a lot better. But they didn't have that in those days. Just had laudanum. Uh, which is opium and alcohol mixed, and I believe once you were on that, you you stopped on it. Uh, but it was purely medicinal. So there we are. Yes, he is pining, and she is a thief of love. She takes the heart literally, and then not literally, 
uses the threads of the heart for her dress, so she's some kind of vampire-like creature. She says that she was thought that she'd lived forever, but she thought the end was nigh, and then fate delivered her the master. And it must be, perhaps, it must be, the, the hint is that you must be longing for love, or you must have a broken heart, or you must be empty of love. So the master is an easy prey, but even the young guy, he succumbs to her a bit, and, well, not a bit, because he she allows him to go home, and his heart is feeding threads over the horizon to this palace of the siren, so she's like a siren. So there is this, um, the mythic siren, the female creature. Now, this is interesting because, and, you know, this is me just being interested in these things. So I'm thinking that, you know, Amory Gilchrist was, was gay, uh, I think that's the hint, isn't it? Um, it may be well known that he was gay. I noticed that Peter Sender had tag, hashtagged queer to this, so um, it, yeah, I'm guessing I'm probably right in my supposition, and if I did a little bit more research, I would find out that he was gay. And so, and yet, psychologically, this is a female that is the siren. So, mm, who knows? I don't know what to make of that. Um I don't know what to make of that anyway, so let's not make anything of it. Um, so, yeah, because it's outside my own experience, so I can't really comment meaningfully on it, but uh, if there are any gay uh, listeners who do have thoughts about this, uh, I guess the idea is that, um, and, and and this is so contentious these days, but I don't mean it to be, that the 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 anima figure in, in, a, in a man, a and we, you know, take that as a straight man, if only by through the tyranny of history and stochastically that that you know this has been the norm rightly or wrongly and so is i'm thinking of a man young here a man's soul is female is is and a woman's soul is male and this is a soul figure this is an anima figure so it would be one would wonder then and there's maybe research done on this whether the the soul figure for a gay man or woman is follows that of a straight man or woman or not i don't know anyway there you go you know these things are so uh you, you find yourself walking on eggshells and it's honestly it's an honest and i'm merely curious i'm not looking to upset anybody somebody will be upset um, i've had a few complaints recently but i mean i think well why bother you with them um, I'm becoming more robust, I think, to them as well. So um, I just kind of booted them off. Um, there we are. So, right. I'm sorry to be even more incoherent than normal. Let's just, let's just spend a little minute just chilling out. The dogs here, we've been to their last dog class today. They were very good. They're the best students in, of all the dogs, they're the best students in the class. I think that. Um, we we just come back from Glastonbury where we stayed in a place called Covenstead, which was, um, it belonged to a witch. It was full of books, you know, of, of all that things, chakras, magic, all sorts. There was, there was Magdalene, the Mary Magdalene, there was Christian stuff up, there was pagan, definitely pagan, mostly pagan stuff. Some, some kind of almost satanic stuff. It looked a bit goat, there was a lot of goaty stuff. And I'm like, whoa, okay, you know. Um, but I slept like a baby. I don't know what that says. Honestly, very, very peaceful place. The staff were wonderful. 
if you if you are looking for a place you've never been anywhere like it before, believe me. I was thinking, is there anywhere in the world like this? Because obviously I don't know everywhere in the world. There's a place in um, Whitby that it ha- is is goth themed, but but this is like, it's not. I mean, it, it, there is a crossover, but um, this was there was um, a vampire killing kit clearly, but there was lots of books. It was candles, the chakra stuff. Uh, Crystal skulls, all sorts of antiquarian stuff, books. It was absolutely amazing. A lovely old, massive old house. And the people, you know, this, you know, you go to places and they say, well, we, um, we dogs welcome. And they mean dogs tolerated, but these, the people, they gave the dogs a sausage each every morning. And they were so welcoming to us. And you had your breakfast. The breakfast was great. I had, um, and I'm not vegetarian, but I had like the at the first morning I had sausages myself, and and that they were fantastic quality. The whole food was, and then and then uh, I had um, fruit and yogurt uh, with lovely bread, and it was really super duper. And so, if you ever go to Glastonbury, you've got to book up a long way ahead because it's very popular. Um, it was a birthday present to me from Sheila, because so my birthday is in March, so it's just um, August now. So it took a while to get the booking. Um, but, you know, Covenstead, Glastonbury, definitely, definitely, definitely. There's other places there, nice places. I'm not saying they're not, but I would definitely recommend it. We took the dogs around, took them up the tour. I had a bit of a stomach bug, not from there. I had a, it, caught it in Cumbria somewhere and drove down. The traffic was appalling, particularly on the way back. There's a stretch now between between Manchester and and Birmingham, and it's it's clogged it, all the time. So... And the, and the solution seemed to have been build more lanes on your motorway. So there's four lanes as standard. Some places there's five. They're usually on and off and roads like that. And it's still clogged up. So I, my reckoning would be if you built another one, it would get clogged up. So there has to, we have to scratch our heads and think about transport. And that isn't just me saying, well, everybody else stay at home so I can travel. Um, it is a, a thing. Anyway, so long journey. I think we need to break it in future rather than do it. It took us about 11 hours both ways. So, and that's a lot for us uh, here. I know probably Australians and Americans are going, that's nothing. We'd go that far to get the milk. But um, I said that as a joke and somewhere else I may have repeated myself. So anyway, so I'm a bit tired from that. Great trip. I bought uh, Young's Black Books. I wasn't going to, there's, there's some great bookshops there as well. Went in playing some good music. I didn't I didn't know it, actually, whereas I remember walking into one in Wendover recently they were playing Pink Floyd's medal, and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, where was I? Somewhere else I was playing Led Zeppelin, you know, some other bookshop. I go into a lot of bookshops. So um, that would be my dream. I, w- I, would have a, I would have a bookshop and just play Hawkwind. I know I would play some Floyd and, and Black Sabbath, probably, and things like that. But... Um, yeah, where so anyway, that is my long and long-winded explanation about where my head's a shed today. Um and yeah, so I'm posting this in advance because we're away again. Could you believe? I'm back at work this week and then next week we're off on our barge trip and we're going down to Warwickshire for that one. Uh it's not quite as far as Somerset, but um and then I'm never going anywhere again, I don't think. I think I'm just going to sit at home. Got Baldur's Gate 3. I haven't played any computer games for a long time, but I was a, a bit of a D&D fan on and off. And so uh, I'm, I'm enjoying that, but it, it deters me from recording. 
So I need to think about which is my priority. <laughs> okay. Um, right. The dogs, Jasper and Ruby, wish you a pleasant day. And so do I. And I always forget this, and it's like the most important thing. So I just want to really thank my supporters, subscribers, members, whatever you call all the different platforms, which is chaotic, um, different places you can join and support me. Uh, but everybody who buys my stuff on Bandcamp, everybody who buys my stuff on Audible, you know, thank you very, very much. You, you allow me to do this for people who aren't in the position to support me, let's say. Okay, so many, many thanks to you all. And as I was saying, and Ruby and Jasper were saying, bye-bye. consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barcud, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.